New puppy? On Airtasker, you can post a task for a dog trainer, a carpet cleaner, and even a photographer for Insta-worthy pooch pics. And your puppy prep is as good as done. Visit Airtasker to get more. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. This episode, we're gonna explore victims' rights, and that is victims of crimes, and how lawyers are getting involved to help victims protect their rights, uh, sometimes even against the very prosecutors uh, and law enforcement that prosecuted the, the the perpetrators, the criminals in the first place. So we're very happy to have today our guest is Kurt Wolfgang. First, I want to say good evening, Kurt. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, audience, bear with me because I have Kurt's resume and I, and I don't want to give it short shrift. And it may take me a while to, to get through it. But uh, when I'm done, I think you'll know why. So anyway, Kurt... Uh, Achieved his bachelor's in 1978 in criminology from the University of Maryland. He did Air Force pilot training, in, uh, which was completed in June of 1980 at Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock, Texas. I just like saying Lubbock, Texas. Uh, he was a distinguished graduate of the Air Force and uh, received the Association's Outstanding Lieutenant Award. He achieved his Juris Doctor in 1984 from the University of Baltimore Law School. That's our football rival from the University of Maryland Law School, as you all know. Um, he's been a lobbyist. That was in the 80s uh, for the cryptom, uh, crime victims' rights. So this is obviously a longstanding passion of, of his, going back further than probably most of you were alive. Uh, he was a prosecutor in the office of Prince George's County. We have, they're called state's attorneys here, not district attorneys, but it's the same position. He was the director of the Inter, uh, Intergovernmental Affairs, the National District Attorneys Association. He was a member ad hoc of the United States Department of Justice Executive Working Group, member ad hoc of the Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice Environmental Working Group. He's an author of a book. He's published, uh, he's also published Let's Stop Criminals, which is E-S-T-O-P. I won't explain it to you why that's a, a lawyer joke, but a stop is sort of like stop, but it's a, there's also a, a civil connotation to it. Um, he published a book called Crime and Punishment in Modern America. So take that, Dostoevsky. He also was the author of an amicus curie brief to the Supreme Court in the case of Booth versus Maryland. So I'm sure that's public record. So you can read some of his stuff. Um, he did the private practice for a bit. He's been staff counsel to the office of the attorney general of Maryland. He's also been a real estate broker and agent. He is presently and has been for the last several years the executive director of the Maryland Crime Victims Resource Center. But that's not all. He's received a White House letter of recognition for work on the Crime Control Act of 1984. In 1988, uh, the Maryland Governor's Award for Volunteer Service to Victims of Crime. In 1989, United States Department of Justice Citation for Volunteer Service to Victims of Crime. Oh, yeah, he was also in the military. He piloted C-130s, C-141s. He was an Air Force reservist, achieving the rank of major and a secret clearance from 1971 
to 2001, so 1979 to 2001. Sheesh, I botched that one. Um, my other show explores UFOs. So did you see any UFOs while you were flying up there? I did, as a matter of fact. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you have to have me on that show. I, yeah. I will absolutely have you on that show. We, we're, did we See that, folks? We, we book things by accident here. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to have you on. I have a lot of UFOlogists on that. And I know a lot of people would like to talk to you. All right, but back to this show. Military honors, 14 decorations, including Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal, and Aerial Achievement Medal for Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the Expeditionary Forces Medal for the Invasion of Panama, and the Humanitarian Service Medal for Hurricane Hugo Relief Missions. He was on active duty as a pilot of C-141s during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He served in Somalia, Panama, Europe, Central America, South America, the Middle East, Asia, Alaska, Alaska and the Pacific, not Antarctica. Uh, never day Antarctica, much to my shame. I missed that one. Yeah, slacker. Community service member, board of directors, senior services of Charles County, which is a county just south of Prince George's in Maryland, for those who aren't familiar with the geography, and why would most of you? Basically, if D.C. is a circle, uh, the, the part around Virginia that, that, that sort of circles it, sort of like a magnet, sort of like an upside-down U, Charles County would be like the southeast quadrant of that. Uh, he's been a member of the Board of Directors for the Charles County Red Cross, member of the Board of Directors for the Maryland Crime Victim Resources Center, uh, formerly known as the Stephanie Roper Foundation. He's the acting chair, board of directors for the Maryland Crime Victim Resources Center uh, through 2003-2005. And he also has a list of imp impressive clients. But I think that you've gotten the picture. We have a very credentialed and accomplished person who has been dedicated to advocating for victims of crimes from day one. But in between, he found time to do a bunch of other little things that, that, that take some dedication to. So I'm out of breath. I'm winded. I need more exercise. So, Kurt. Please tell us what encompasses victims' crime, and maybe what's what's your origin story? Why why is it that that you felt such a bond to this so personally uh, and diligently so early in your career path? In uh, in 1982, when I was a law student, uh, there was a horrific crime that took uh, most Marylanders by the throat. Uh, it was the brutal rape, torture, and murder of a beautiful and wonderful uh, um, uh, college girl, college student who was about to graduate from, from uh, Frostburg, and her name was Stephanie Ann Roper. Uh, Stephanie uh, had uh, her car get disabled on a uh, rural road in Prince George's County, which uh, is to just directly to the east of, uh, of Washington, D.C., and uh, 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 two uh, local punks came along, offered their assistance, and she got in the car with them. And unfortunately uh, for her, uh, they, uh, they pulled a gun on her. They uh, repeatedly raped and sodomized her uh, for hours and hours that night. They took her to another county where they continued. Uh, and uh, eventually, she tried to escape. They shot her. They uh, beat her with a logging chain. Mm. They set her afire. And uh, after the crime was over, back in those days, there wa wasn't uh, 
any such thing as DNA evidence, or it was it was very very new at the time. So they were more concerned with uh, other means of identification. So they dismembered her her body uh, so as to ensure that she would not be uh, identifiable. Wow. Uh, eventually, uh, they were caught because one of them bragged to his friends. And, uh, you know, the story came out in that fashion. The perpetrators were uh, uh, two uh, uh, locals by the name of Jack Ronald Jones and Jerry Lee Beatty. And uh, uh, they, at the time, faced the death penalty uh, in Maryland. Maryland no longer has a death penalty. Uh, but uh, the story then uh, sort of switches to the manner in which uh, her family was treated uh, during this process of these of these trials. Jerry Beatty pled guilty uh, and testified against Jack Ronald Jones. The trial of Jack Jack Jones uh, took place actually was removed to Baltimore County and took place uh, in Towson. Uh, Maryland. And uh, uh, as I said, the, the, the story was gripping everyone uh, across the state at the time. Uh, there wasn't anyone who I knew that uh, thought that, that these two individuals shouldn't get whatever the maximum was. You know, even my uh, people with differing opinions as to what the maximum should be, whether there should be a death penalty or not. Uh, but no one uh, seemed to uh, disagree that these guys should never walk the face of the earth again. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, um, to uh, everyone's surprise, I mean, there was a, a, a huge component as to how the family was treated during the trial. Uh, and that was uh, uh, just very dissatisfying to people. But uh, to everyone's surprise, uh, Jack Jones did not get the maximum sentence of, that was available to him. He uh, was sentenced to life imprisonment, and uh, the uh, determination, I think the thing that shocked people the most is when you drilled down to determine what a, uh, a life sentence was worth in Maryland at the time. And uh, it, it's a very peculiar thing. You can't really, there's really no one out there. There may be people who say they can define for you what, what it means, but uh, trust me, there is no one who can put an actual figure on it. Right. Uh, but the figure that was put on it for them was that uh, there would be parole eligibility in 11 years and seven months. Wow. And uh, the, uh, the the family was outraged and went to the you know they didn't have to go to the press the press came to them of course and uh, uh, Stephanie's parents were uh, were a very impressive people and and still are I, I should say Roberta Roper is still with us on the board of directors uh, but uh, Vince Roper her father uh, was a Navy captain. And a retired Navy captain. And Vince walked up to the mics and said, you can knock off a 7-Eleven and get 11 years and seven months. What's wrong here? What's wrong with this? Uh, 
within a year, uh, that turned into a movement, and we had 5,000 people uh, standing on the greens down in Annapolis uh, uh, during the next legislative session, seeking things to be changed. Uh, and I was, of course, part of the movement. One of the things it, it captured me from a number of different perspectives, but uh, as the parents were excluded from the courtroom during the trial uh, for no reason, uh, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll flesh that out in a minute, but essentially, no good reason they were excluded from the trial. And uh, when I learned of that, um, I would take time off after my classes and go up there and I introduced myself to them and told them that I would sit in the trial and, and at least let them in on what I knew, uh, you know, uh, not that I knew much because I was a law student, but, uh, uh, I guess I knew more than the average person did. And so I became their, uh, their conduit for information from what was going on in the trial. And from that point, I helped them found the organization, uh, in 1982. Okay. Well, that, that, that certainly is a story worth telling. Um, and it's great that, that, um, you've continued with the family and they've continued with you. So obviously you did a good job of the, you know, interpreting what was going in from legalese to English and giving your, takes on what was going on in the trial. So, and, you know, most of all, you stood by them. They probably just needed someone, anyone to be there like a, a friendly stranger. And that, and that was you. Um, so, yeah, so let, let's, I guess let's take it from your origin story to sort of the general purposes or specific purposes of the organization. And then you can sort of tell us what, what it's done and what it's trying to do and, and maybe why it's, so important historically and now? So right at the same time, uh, the president had a commission studying uh, uh, crime victims' rights, president of the United States. Uh, the president's commission on victims of crime, I believe what it was called. They came out with a uh, couple of hundred page report uh, in 1982, and it really framed uh, what uh, became the crime victims movement across the country. Uh, and what it called for really was uh, was uh, a uh, an amendment to the United States Constitution, uh, which never took place. Uh, but every one of the suggestions. Uh, Essentially, in that uh, govern in that uh, president's report, was eventually enacted in statute uh, uh, in federal law. So, uh, and in fact, the uh, the uh, Roberta Roper and Vince Roper and the organization were so effective in helping to lobby for that that. Federal statute is named after uh, Stephanie Roper and uh, and another victim, I believe, from Oregon, whose name escapes me at this point. But the federal statute is called the Stephanie Roper Law. Uh, and uh, um, I'm sorry, how many states have adopted similar laws to the federal statute? I'm going to say uh, 46 
uh, oh, states. That's pretty impressive. And, um, the others, uh, you know, have uh, have case law and other things that uh, that sort of migrated in uh, that carry victims' rights. But there's no state that that hasn't been altered in some fashion or other. But the, the overall concept of victims' rights is that this process can go on and still uh, save dignity and respect and sensitivity for the victims during the process. Uh, it, I, I can't tell anybody what the experience is like until it happens to you or your loved one. Uh, it, it is, it is uh, by nature undignified and unfortunately um, victims end up being treated like pieces of evidence as opposed to uh, uh, you know an integral uh, reason for the entire existence of the system uh, and uh, that's something that we fight on a regular basis uh, obviously there are uh, prosecutors out there who uh, have good attitudes and treat victims in, in a fashion that they should be treated. Uh, there are others who uh, do not uh, do so well in that arena. And there, uh, of course, are uh, judges making rulings that, uh, that sort of ignore victims' rights on a regular basis. And that's where we come into play. You know, one of the things that's rather unique about our organization that we're so proud of is that there are only, I believe, six states in the United States that allow attorneys to uh, enter their appearance in the criminal case itself on behalf of the crime victim. Uh, but we do that on a regular basis uh, on behalf of our clients. Uh, uh, we uh, enter our appearance in the criminal matter and Essentially, stand by to ensure that uh, uh, that their rights are given uh, fruition. And obviously, in Maryland, uh, uh, maybe I've jumped a step there, but in in Maryland, we fought hard for uh, many changes in statutes over the years. We have over a hundred uh, statute changes that we uh, initiated ourselves, and of course, many that we. Uh, helped with, but uh, one of the biggest is uh, uh, Article 47 to the Maryland Declaration of Rights, which is uh, essentially the last amendment, I believe, to the uh, Declaration of Rights that uh, uh, grants uh, rights to uh, to victims of crime. Yeah, uh, so, so the people, so that they know. The Maryland Declaration of Rights is sort of like the the Bill of Rights uh, in in the Constitution. Uh, you know, obviously the U.S. Constitution is the United States, but each state has their own constitution or charter or whatever. But in Maryland, we have the Declaration of Rights. So, in essence, it was a constitutional amendment um, or addition, uh, in this case, as it would be to the actual uh, the the law of the entire state of Maryland. It's uh, you know. Uh, you know, now immutable, less another, you know, uh, amendment rescinded. And constitutional amendments or chart, you know, declaration of rights amendments are not easy to get. And they're uh, just, just, you know, 
there was only the what, what the uh, the prohibition that was rescinded. I think that's the the only amendment to ever be rescinded. Right, right. So there's, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on as well. Um, I I presume that the foundation is a tax exempt entity, right? Yes, it is. Okay, so you know, uh, do you have uh, you know, so the nobody's getting rich doing this. I, I mean, I'm sure that the attorneys get some sort of fair compensation. But this is all paid through donations. And it sounds like you'd probably be a 501c4, not a three. We are a three. Uh, a three. We are a 501c3. Okay. And, and uh, you know, our primary source of funding is, is grants. Uh, uh, you know, donations is secondary uh, to us. And, uh, you know, unfortunately it is. I, I would much prefer it the other way around because... As you might know, as many people might know, when you're dealing with grants, they come with lots of strings attached. Uh, having said that, uh, it's just the realities of the situation. Uh, uh, and in terms of our attorneys and, uh, and our, our staff, we have a dozen attorneys, some of them just with outstanding pedigrees. Uh, we have two uh, Harvard Law attorneys with 40 plus years of experience. One of them was uh, a uh, higher level management at the uh, Justice Department before he retired. And he likes working for us better than he liked working for the Justice Department. Uh, and yet we pay him less than one third of what he was paid there. So, yes, uh, there is some compensation for the attorneys. It ain't much, and uh, and and the same thing goes really for our victim advocates, which makes up the bulk of our other employees that uh, in our organization. They are highly trained. Uh, they could be making fifteen thousand dollars more if they were working for a state's attorney's office somewhere, and yet they choose to stay and work with us because of job satisfaction. Uh, because it is, uh, uh, something that, uh, we all, uh, hold so dear is to help these people who are in such desperate need. That's great. So what, what is a typical scenario? Uh, how does someone contact? I mean, do they even, you know, how does someone even find out that, that you exist? Um, and, you know, and then what, what's the process from there? How do you vet? who you're going to take. I mean, I assume that not everyone gets in, but maybe that's wrong. Um, you know, what, well, what you almost, doing? almost everyone gets in. I mean, uh, uh, we, uh, we have to, uh, as, uh, with most attorneys, we have to start with an assumption that we're being told the truth by our clients, sure. uh, who come to us and, uh, uh, and we do so, uh, I think we are a little more uh, oriented towards uh, uh, firing clients who uh, we determine are not telling the truth as time goes on than a private attorney would be. You know, a private attorney is more concerned with uh, presenting the the position of his client regardless of, uh, I won't say regardless of the merits of it, but but uh, with less regard to the merits of it. 
It's a different job. I mean, you're there to represent victims. So if someone continually lies to you, especially about material things, maybe they're not so much the victim. I mean, uh, as opposed to a client who's got the duty to rule one, zealously advocate for your client. That's right. That's right. And while we still zealously advocate for the client, we are, uh, I guess you could say that we, consider that we have a bit of a public function as well and, and that, that requires us to ensure that uh, we are uh, moving forward uh, with someone who is uh, is telling us the truth and if we get uh, an idea that they're not uh, we're starting to uh, find ways to go in a different direction yeah, if you're having said that for someone and it's probably fairly public uh, you want to make sure that you're going to war for the right people. Right, right. Uh, everything is uh, is done at no cost to the victims. Most of our victims are referred to us by prosecutors or, uh, or you know, the, the office of the prosecutor in one fashion or another. Uh, sometimes they learn uh, of us through other ways. But we don't really have a, any kind of an ad, advertising budget or anything of that nature. So often it's word of mouth or hearing uh, hearing something about us on the news or looking us up on the internet. Uh, when they get in contact with us, of course, we do some screening to ensure that we don't have any conflicts of interest uh, with them. If we do, we uh, have any conflicts of interest. We do have some volunteer attorneys here and there uh, that don't work for our organization who will jump in and uh, and uh, represent on occasion uh, where we have a conflict. Um, it, it's uh, we, you know, from that from that point on, it is uh, very similar to the work of another attorney to to. Uh, uh, um, in the in the early stages, uh, our victims are handled by the victim advocates who try to make a determination of what these people need. It's not all our organization is not all oriented towards uh, the legal aspect in the case. Uh, sometimes uh, they are helped with counseling. Sometimes they're referred. To other organizations, we try to make sure uh, what they need in terms of restitution. Uh, most states, uh, if not all states, have a criminal injuries compensation scheme of one uh, uh, sort or another. So there is a an entity that we can represent them, uh, where we can represent them in a claim for unpaid expenses that. Uh, are a result of the crime uh, to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board. And some of that gets rather uh, urgent and poignant, you know, when there's uh, uh, someone who's been hurt badly or murdered, uh, those, uh, those expenses that are involved, uh, both for family support and, and for funeral expenses and things of that nature. And the bill collectors generally keep coming. Yes. I, I mean, uh, I can tell you story after story. We have uh, currently uh, have a case in which, in fact, we have two cases 
uh, believe it or not, unrelated, in which uh, uh, cab drivers were uh, shot and uh, uh, and completely disabled as a result. Uh, and of course, the cab companies claim that they're independent contractors, and therefore they they don't you know have any workers' comp coverage for them. So uh, you know those cases we take to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board. And as you and I talked before uh, going uh, live this evening, uh, the the uh, the maximum amount at the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board is forty thousand dollars. That doesn't go very far when you're disabled. Right. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of sad stories out there. I am uh, uh, I am representing, uh, in fact, the trial goes on this week for a wonderful young man in uh, Prince George's County who uh, uh, I, I think he was probably 20 years old when he was randomly shot outside of his house and uh it uh it affected his ability it affected his health in a number of different ways uh, it affected his ability to walk really he was in a wheelchair sometimes and sometimes not but probably a year and a half after the event he became completely blind uh as a result of the injury to his uh uh brain and um, you know, we, we're working on, uh, on that case right now, which is of course an, a attempted murder case. Uh, uh, but, uh, he's completely disabled and we're trying and he's above and beyond the normal scale of things. You know, we're trying to get, uh, assistance from other organizations to help him with his blindness and, and his uh, mobility problems. Yeah, so severe and permanent injuries. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the same. I have a question about this: the victims' compensation fund. Is this something where you go through the court, or do you file a claim through some administrative or executive agency? What, what, what's what's the process? It is an administrative agency uh, located up in Baltimore, Criminal Injuries Compensation Board or Criminal Injuries Compensation Fund. Uh, it, uh, I, I don't remember how many, uh, members are on the board, but they essentially, uh, take the applications and make, uh, determinations based on the rules as to who gets what and when, uh, the rules generally are that, uh, uh, um, property damage is not covered in Maryland, maybe covered in other locations, but beyond that, uh, just about any sort of uh, of uh, uh, loss would be covered. So a car the problem would be covered, but maybe if you lost, you know, you, you couldn't get a rental car for four days and you lost wages, maybe that part would be covered? Uh, loss of wages might be covered, but, uh, but loss of your automobile wouldn't be covered. Nice. So. So, so the, uh, big, the big fish gets away, but the you know the, the little fish maybe you can get to, or maybe you can get a rental car. Maybe the, uh, I'm sure if you get a rental car, they start to ask why you couldn't take the bus and things like that. Well, the goal, the, the primary goal they were trying to do there was to save the the fund for uh, 
back in the day, the fund had limitations uh, and it would run out of funds on a regular basis. Uh, it doesn't, I don't think it does that anymore. I think that when it reaches the bottom, I think they pay it out of the general fund. Uh, but uh, um, the, the, the goal was to keep the funds for the uh, uh, those who had physical injuries. Okay. And that's what they were trying to do. Uh, but uh, it's so that was always the purpose. It's it's not it's it's not some sort of cruel anachronism. It's it's just it's just it was always to help people with their actual physical injuries and, and the direct consequence of that, not necessarily right. property damage. Okay, got it. Um, is there? I mean, this, this hopefully this isn't too long an answer. But if they if it doesn't go your way, is there? Can you uh, appeal it up to the circuit courts, or you know, is there normal appeal routes? Sure. Just the normal process that you would do for any uh, administrative agency appeal. And we have done those and we've done them uh, up into the uh, all the way to the court of appeals and change, change the law. You know, one of the things that we tried to change recently that we did, we were not successful. uh, The criminal injuries compensation board is considered a place of last resort for this. So. If there is any other means to pay for your losses uh, that are associated with the loss itself, uh, then then you you're not supposed to be able to collect from criminal injuries. A good example is someone who is murdered who has life insurance, uh, and uh, if uh, if the life insurance is sufficient to cover the loss, you're not supposed to be able to go. Uh, to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board uh, because uh, you've already essentially been compensated for your loss. Uh, one of the things that we have fought them on uh, and lost is the disability aspect. And when uh, someone receives Social Security funds uh, for disability, uh, the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board has taken a position that that is a direct result of the injury, and therefore they don't have to pay because the person is receiving uh, Social Security disability. Do they ever uh, send uh, money back? Like, for for instance, your your gentleman now who's who's blind, and you automatically get Social Security disability if you're blind. And I mean, he sounds like he's eligible anyway. He was before, but if they paid any of that forty thousand dollars. Do they ever go and say, oh, now you're getting, you're getting SSD, uh, you have to pay us back, or is it just like, no, we're just not paying you anymore? Uh, I have heard of such cases, but we haven't been involved in any such cases. That's 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 good. Um, what about the case, and I'm sure this comes up very infrequently, but in the world of TV and drama, but, you know, I, I, I really don't like to use anyone's name, but, I mean, okay, Harvey Weinstein, I think, is dead, so let's say... Harvey Weinstein is 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 the criminal in this case. Is is the position of the the board? Well, don't come to us because this guy is a multimillionaire. You should sue him civilly first. No, uh, no, they don't take that position. Okay. They do take the position that if you sue him civilly and get an award uh, that that is uh, satisfactory uh, regarding. The uh, the injuries that they recognize, 
that you would have to pay back uh, the fund. Okay. And, you know, it comes up more uh, along the lines of uh, when, you know, there's, there's several overlapping things happening here. Uh, you know, there might be a uh, restitution award for a certain amount of money. Then there might be uh, a criminal injuries compensation claim. Uh, and there might be insurance involved. And so how, what's the interplay between all three of those? And, uh, obviously criminal injuries compensation wants to come out on top, uh, in that scenario. Uh, but we sort of try to play it so that we get the, uh, the restitution is, uh, optimized, uh, and, uh, it is then up to us or up to our clients to pay uh, money back as they are paid it uh, uh, by the uh, by the restitution. Uh, you know, if they if they are able to collect on restitution, which is a, a difficult process, uh, it's a giant. right? Money then would get paid back to criminal injuries compensation. Um. I know that you have, you know, it, it, it's probably a mostly cordial relationship with the state's attorney's office. They they gave they give out the information. They, perhaps they're required to give out the information as to your organization's existence. Um, does it ever get to a point where there's adverse motions and hearings where you're stepping in? I, I guess it would be at either the charging or the sentencing phase uh, where you are then adverse to the state's attorney's office and in the and in a sort of in a perverse way, the state's attorney's office and the defense attorney are both opposing you or your office. Yes, it happens. It's a uh, it's a rarity, but it happens. And uh, you know what I try to point out, and you know it's a it is a difficult process. Most of our referrals come from state's attorneys because they know us and they trust us and they understand our position and things. But there's always tension there because uh, sim- tension is always present in the the uh, uh, legal system, in my estimation, when uh, you are between uh, entities who are representing uh, different interests. And, you know, uh, the, the state's attorney has a critical role in the criminal justice process. But that critical role is not representing the crime victim. Right. Uh, they do it uh, they, to, a, to a certain degree. They have to represent the interests of the crime victim where they, where they coincide with the victims of, I mean, with the uh, interests of the, the public in general. But the, essentially, they represent the public in general. And so there, there is tension. And when, uh, People are mature enough. People, meaning the prosecutors and the and our attorneys, are mature enough to understand and and uh, appreciate those differences. They don't get upset when uh, we have to take a position that uh, that causes problems for the other side. Just part of the adversarial process. Uh, uh, it it. Uh, probably is a bigger problem for us than it is for defense attorneys and uh, and prosecutors because we're, uh, despite the fact that we are 30 years into this 
And I say 30 because that's about the amount of time that we've been actually entering appearances and cases and representing uh, clients. Uh, but that's still new uh, to people. There are uh, judges out there uh, on a regular basis who are surprised at uh, the existence of the Article 47 of the Declaration of Rights, which grants crime victims uh, rights. Uh, you know, to in large measure, if you are a crime victim in Maryland and you are being represented you're being represented by our organization. Uh, I, I have gone back and checked uh, where I can, and I would say that there are probably a handful of other cases in which someone from another organization or, or a private attorney has stepped in and represented a crime victim. Right. So, uh, and, and I keep telling my people, as, as wonderful as the services that we uh uh, offer to people are we're representing less than one tenth of one percent of Maryland's crime victims every day, and so it's a it, it can be a rather novel thing to a state's attorney or a uh, or uh, a judge uh, uh, might not even know what we're talking about when we walk into the courtroom and they well, meet for the first time. A couple things for the audience because you know a the audience is in. Uh, located in Maryland for the most part, and they're certainly not lawyers. So just a couple of things. Um, Kurt mentioned the Court of Appeals in Maryland a little bit earlier. Just so that you know, that's our state's highest court. That's the Supreme Court of, of Maryland. There is there is no higher state-level court in Maryland. I mean, occasionally things, I guess, you know, if there's a, pro- a proper question or whatnot, it can be appealed to, you know, either to the Supreme Court for a constitutional issue or I guess a federal court if there's a federal issue, but basically this, the court of appeals is, is generally speaking the, the last stop here. The other thing is we, you know, at the trial level, uh, we have district courts and circuit courts and judges, and, and sometimes it differs a little bit, but judges can at times are appointed and at other times are elected. What does that mean? And elect, you know, if you run for election, you don't even have to be a lawyer. Now, I suppose theoretically you can be appointed and not be a lawyer, though I would imagine that's probably few and far between, though uh, perhaps I should check my history a little bit, uh, you know, and then maybe I'd be surprised. Um, now, not many of those judges, unless they distinguish themselves, are going to go up to the appellate levels, but, but a lot of things that we're talking about here are at the, the trial level. Um, so some of those judges, maybe it shouldn't surprise you, maybe even if they were lawyers, they had no criminal law experience whatsoever, exposure whatsoever. They might have been a tax attorney or whatever. And uh, and now they're in criminal law and and there's a third attorney there and they're going, I'm sorry, sir, you know, or, or ma'am, you you don't you, you have to get behind the galley, bailiff, and then you're like, may it please the court, uh, you know, I, I beg to correct. Um so it shouldn't surprise the audience to, to learn that there are occasions where the you know the judges may not have been exposed to not even be lawyers themselves. But probably some judges, because as Kurt said, they, they represent about one tenth of one percent of victims. That there may be judges that have never been exposed to this type of uh, representation before. Yes, that's that's right. We run into that on a regular basis, and uh, you know, it ha- the the flip side, of course, is once we are established, uh, the uh, 
we've we generally have a, a, a much easier going with uh, uh, with the, the judges who become familiar with us. Good. Um, in the recent months, there you know there there's been a lot of high profile cases. There always are, but but, but some have seemed to take even a higher degree of, of the public attention. And one was uh, Ahmad Arbery uh, in Georgia, and his uh, murders were convicted in Georgia state court. And then the feds also uh, went to prosecute uh, for civil rights violations, and they were again convicted. Um, but there was a sentence that the there was going to there was recommended uh, by the the prosecutors from the Justice Department, a plea bargain or, or an agreement with the defense counsel and the family, they said, well, this violates uh, federal law where well, we have a, a right to have a say and we reject this. And, and the judge sided with the family on that. Is that related to to the Roper Act, the, the, the federal law that you referred to earlier? It absolutely is. And, uh, and it was uh, perhaps one of the most important pieces uh, of the legislation that we worked on over the years. Now, Maryland, when we came on the scene in 1982, Maryland did have uh, a uh, uh, a written victim impact statement, but it did not allow uh, oral uh, an oral impact statement at sentencing. Uh, some judges were doing it uh, despite the fact that that there was no statute that authorized it, uh, but uh, it was not allowed over overall, and so most judges, I would say, were not allowing it. Uh, it was not allowed in death penalty cases, uh, uh, and uh, and that essentially was the uh, issue that uh, that came up in Booth versus the State of Maryland. I went to the Supreme Court. Uh, was the nature and, and the use of a of uh, a victim oral impact uh, at sentencing uh, a victim impact statement orally at sentencing in a death penalty case? Uh, so, but uh, so would you would you call the Booth case maybe the most important case that you've been involved with? Simply because not because of the motion or anything, but simply because it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, I think we we're uh involved in some that have uh and and uh, and our position by the way lost in booth but uh within four years the supreme court reversed itself uh and uh uh in uh in a, a case whose name escapes me right now uh but uh four years later they came back and actually cited our brief uh in uh in the uh subsequent case to uh, to change uh, law and that doesn't happen very often at the Supreme Court they don't they don't uh, once they set a precedent they don't uh, they try to stick with it longer than four years yeah, start uh, but in booth even though you lost were there were there any significant dissenting opinions that, that maybe you you said yeah we didn't get it this time but but all we need is one more justice yes well that's fairly well what happened uh was uh um, yeah his name will come to me in a minute but uh 
the uh, the judge who wrote the dissenting opinion uh, four years later was the judge who wrote the uh, uh, the majority opinion. And, uh, and pardon me. What year are we talking about? Nineteen eighty-seven, maybe uh, was Booth, and oh. so nineteen ninety-one would have been the. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, we're talking like the Rehnquist Court uh, era. Uh, say that again. That's like the Rehnquist Court era, right? It was a Rehnquist uh, era, uh, but uh, why? Why is his name not in my head? I'm sorry, it's a senior moment, but. Because it was thirty-five years uh, ago, that's why it's not in your head. The uh, the the justice who uh, died in his sleep in Texas five years ago uh, uh, was the one who wrote Suter? David Souter. No, not Souter. Uh, Scalia. Scalia. Yes. Yeah. So Scalia wrote the dissent in Booth, and then wrote the majority opinion in the subsequent case. And and quoted our brief on both, you know, both uh, proceedings. But the back to the, your original question is: Is that the most uh, important? Well, it might be the most famous case, but I think we've had cases of equal import, and one of them uh, is essentially still going on right now. Uh, and, uh, uh, that is the uh, the Beltway murderer and. Uh, um, for the for the life of me, I do not understand this. I'm, I'm also trying to dig at his name right now. Forgive me; it's my a 65 year old brain. But uh, uh, I don't remember their names either. I, I wish I could help. Well, they were in the white. John Muhammad is the one who was executed uh, in Virginia, and uh, the the other one is has essentially become a poster child for this concept of giving a second chance to uh, youthful offenders. And, you know, across the nation, there has become a fad, a phase, uh, that uh, because people's brains are not necessarily fully developed until they're age 25, that people who were offenders uh, at age 25 and below should be given extra chances of some sort uh, or another. And uh, uh, it, essentially that has become a statute in Maryland now, as it has in a number of other places, uh, where someone uh, who is convicted in an adult court, but they were 16 or 17 years old at the time that they were convicted, and sometimes 15. Um, you know, if you commit a heinous, particularly heinous act, you can be tried in an adult court, even though you're a juvenile. Right, and there's and, a uh, that too. It's not automatic, but yeah. Right, right. So, uh, essentially, he's in that... Uh, the other Beltway murderer is in uh, in that position. Uh, they are trying, they meaning the public defender's office, the ACLU have been trying to get him a resentencing uh, forever. And, uh, you know, we have an amicus brief in, in front of the 
it was, that also went to the, to the Supreme Court, but for technical reasons, uh, essentially was mooted at the Supreme Court. Now, uh, there is still a proceeding going on in Maryland's highest court that we are a party to, uh, uh, right now. Uh, and, uh, I am, I'm hopeful that our participation in the process is going to point out that there's even a, 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 a procedural argument that the, that this individual doesn't have a right to appeal in the fashion that he's done that. And we've raised that in our, our brief. So we're still hopeful that, uh, that we can make a difference in that case where you have a man who admitted to murdering 20 people. You have a man who admitted that his next victim was going to be a pregnant woman. Uh, and, and yet some people in our society think that, that he, you know, ought to be entitled to your sympathy, uh, and ought to be entitled to walk the face of our earth again. Uh, it, the, the, the logic escapes me other than to say that I don't think that they think about where he's going to walk. And uh, if they knew he was going to walk in their neighborhood, uh, they'd think a little differently about it. But he won't walk in their neighborhood. He'll walk in the neighborhood of the crime victims that we represent. Right. I have a question for you on the route. So and what I mean is when you are challenging something, is it through the criminal court system on up, or do you ever have to go outside of the criminal court uh, privity line and file a, a civil suit or something, uh, you know, either in the same jurisdiction or federal, or, or, or do you strictly work within, you know, where it's state of Maryland versus Joe Schmo, wherever it started that and wherever it went up to that line? Very seldom have we become involved in civil suits, but it is possible. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the bills that we worked for over the years was to make restitution automatically a civil judgment as well. And so now we are able to try to enforce uh, restitution orders, in a, you know, using civil techniques to do that. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, we have we have some other um, cases that have involved us going outside the criminal process and into the civil process. One of yeah. them, for example, uh, right now we are. I think you have to go there or something. <laughs> uh, we uh, yes, uh, kind of squeaky. Sorry about that. It's okay. We, uh, uh, we have a case we're preparing right now. Uh, last year, maybe uh, I don't—I can't remember quite remember whether it was 2020 or 2021. But the most bizarre cases I ever saw got filed in the Court of Appeals without being, without having any prior uh, uh, cases in the. Uh, uh, in the trial level. And those cases essentially were oriented towards letting, uh, convicted criminals out of prison. And, uh, uh, 
you know, on, on a wholesale basis, uh, oriented towards, uh, COVID, COVID-19. And right. so they, the ACLU filed directly into the, uh, into the court of appeals. Well, that's, and that was a civil suit of sorts. And we, of course, joined in, uh, uh, in that case. But, but another case that they have done recently on the federal level had to do with these youthful offenders. And, uh, they reached a settlement. The short version of the story is they reached a settlement with the state of Maryland. And part of the settlement was really bizarre. It was, that the Maryland's parole commission had to review, uh, its regulations and, and they sort of specified how they should change their regulations. Uh, and Maryland would not agree to changing the regulations, but they would agree that the parole commission would look at changing the regulations. So in, in essence, Maryland's parole commission did look at its regulations and it did change its regulations. Now, what the regulations say is that every time you get a parole hearing, uh, the first parole hearing, uh, the facts of the original case uh, are of significant importance. After the first parole hearing, they're not of significant importance anymore. Uh, you know, it, that's just an utterly shocking concept to me. You know, and, and uh, it's for a reason, I don't understand that. Well, because uh, this of uh, this movement uh, nationwide that's trying to emphasize uh, rehabilitation uh, to the detriment of all of the other reasons that are there uh, for uh, 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 criminal penalty, you know, uh, uh, deterrence and. Uh, and uh, uh, incapacitation and retribution, uh, they want them all cast out, cast aside uh, for the one that they uh, prefer, and that's rehabilitation. So essentially, they want the parole commission to be looking only at the progress that this person has been has made. Now, apply that to some of the people that we've talked about here for a minute, because one of them is Jerry Lee Beatty. Uh, the murderer of uh, Stephanie Ann Roper back in 1982. Jerry Lee Beatty will, uh, this, this, uh, this change that they're seeking will apply to Jerry Lee Beatty. Jerry Beatty, when he comes up for parole, uh, the, the circumstances of his offense will be minimized, uh, and only his progress in the system will be, uh, looked at for determination. So it, it won't matter that Jerry Beatty took an axe and, and chopped someone's head off. And it, you know, it won't matter that, uh, uh, that the, that, uh, forgive me for sounding, uh, crude with all of this. I want you to understand that Roberta Roper, uh, is a woman of steel. She's been through this and she's, She's heard it all and said it all herself because she wants to get the point across. And the point is the horrific things that they did to that girl, uh, will never be, never again be considered by the parole commission. Uh, 
what instead will be considered as uh, as how many uh, uh, good credits that uh, Jerry Lee Beatty's got and uh, how many classes he took and things of that nature. Right. Uh, you know, that's, that is just unconscionable to me. And I, I don't understand. I am of the opinion, maybe, maybe my opinion is wrong. I don't know, but uh, I am of the opinion that if you took a poll on the likes of Jerry Beatty, and the uh, Beltway murderer that we referred to earlier, uh, Marylanders would say never is the day that they should get out of prison. And I think they would say that overwhelmingly. And I don't understand where the disconnect is if we're living in a democratic society. I don't either. Um, and that brings me back to a question I asked a while ago, because just so that when I asked earlier if it was a 501c3 or a 501c3, a C4, um, the, the, the four versus the three is a, with a C3, you, you can, you can have political positions, uh, but, but you can't really strongly support. You can't lobby. C4, you can lobby. You can be an advocate. You can, you can be full on policies. So because you're a C3, you're, somewhat limited in that other than public pressure, but do you have any ally or friendly C4s out there or, or, or just plain old for-profit lobbyists? That back, back in the day, we actually had both. You know, mm -hmm. back uh, for the first 15, 20 years of our existence, we had a C3 and a C4. Okay. Uh, and that's that's how we handled it. Ah, well, that what, we, what we determined uh, after a while that the manner in which we lobby and the amount of lobbying that we do and the amount of money that we, the, the very little that we expend on lobbying, we've expended zero dollars in the last, uh, say, three years on lobbying. Uh, this, this parole situation, would that require lobbying or is, is that the, uh, the Department of Corrections decision or, who, you know, well, that's going to be a civil suit. That's going to be a civil suit. We are going to we are preparing a suit against the uh, 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 the uh, Department of Public Safety and Corrections and the Maryland Parole Commission, indicating that they've exceeded their authority in changing their regulations. Ah, uh, okay. So it's not so statutory; it's internal regulations. Okay, so this is one of those cases where a civil suit is appropriate, though it's not exactly the circumstance I described. But we walked into it anyway, which is, um, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate that, that you have to do it, but it's fortunate for the purposes of exploring the issues and what you all do. Um, I, I, I gather from the, the conversation that, you know, that, that if someone gets, you know, like if police violate someone's civil rights, that's not the, the victim of crime that, that you're dealing with. That's a, that's a different uh, area of practice of law, there are other attorneys that maybe file suits against police officers, your municipalities, et cetera, for, that, for those kinds of uh, alleged excesses. Well, we, we generally do not get involved in civil suits of any kind uh, in that regard. I mean, we've done it on rare occasion. Uh, the best example I can give you is about three years ago, we had a case in which a uh, uh, a brother, uh, mother died and left the house and her estate to uh, three 
three brothers. Mm-hmm. One brother became the uh, personal representative of the estate, forged the signature of the other two on the deed, and essentially stole the house. Uh, that only happened rarely. <laughs> we actually got the, and we got him criminally charged with forgery. And his defense attorney was very, uh, a very good guy, very cooperative, and got him to sign the house back. We we just simply reversed the deed process uh, as part of uh, you know sort of a restitution thing. But once we did that. Uh, you know, our client was still only one third owner of the property, and the the convicted uh, forger didn't want to sell. So we filed a sale and lieu of partition action to force him to sell uh, the property and divide the proceeds. And eventually, you know, we we reached a settlement and all of that. So that's sort of a tangential civil suit that we filed. Do, do and the answer might be no, but uh, I mean. Usually when somebody doesn't want to sell a house and they're incarcerated, you know, it's probably for two reasons. One, they don't want to have funds to pay restitution, which is probably the most likely uh, part of it. And, you know, a sale of a house will give them funds that are immediately, you know, available to, uh, you know, the, the parole and probation uh, to pay the, the victim. The other is that they, maybe they want to make sure they have a place to live once they, <laughs> once they get out that they don't have to pay for. Uh, do, we, do we know what the, what this uh, person's motivation was? Not that it really matters. It's just trying to add a little color just for my own little curiosity. Yeah, my recollection is that that uh, he actually had the place rented out, and that he was he was collecting the rent. We uh, we actually talked about uh, going after him for the rent money, but our client was satisfied enough that we we got the property sold and and or or we got. I, eventually, what we got was a buyout. Uh, it wasn't that the property was sold, but uh, uh, we got a buyout and that, that our client was satisfied with. Very good. Uh, is there anything else that I didn't ask or that you wanted to tell us that that, that uh, we should get to before I let you, you know, give the information as to if people want to donate, how do they donate, how do they find you? Uh, and, you know, and or resources to find similar organizations in, you know, throughout the United States and, and if you know, possibly the world? Well, I can tell you that uh, an organization called the uh, Criminal Justice Research Service uh, recently had their own federal grant study where they were trying to pick the three organizations similar to what we do across the country that we're the best and uh, uh, and study what they do so that they could try to uh, pass along the techniques uh, to uh, encourage other organizations. When they picked us and they, they started uh, putting together the data, they, they really were looking internally at, 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 uh, at all of our data of how we do things. And what we determined was that these two other organizations, uh, and they're good organizations, don't get me wrong, but uh, just to give you the the depth of things, uh, they were opening 
there's an organization in Oregon and or, organization in Arizona and us. And uh, one of them was opening 35 new cases a year. The other one was opening 55 new cases a year. And we were opening 800 cases a year. There you go. Uh, that's not a good, that's not even a good uh, indicator of what, how much work we do because we're not just working on the new cases. We are working on the old cases. When a case was uh, adjudicated in 1993, we'll be in, uh, in front of the parole commission uh, with the victim uh, arguing in front of the parole commission all these years later. So uh, to a large degree, uh, many of our cases don't die. And we keep working on them year after year. Yeah, I, I know how that goes. Um, I have a feeling a lot of that has to do with you and your tenure with the with the, the group and some of the people that you've uh, brought into the group. It sounds like a, a few people with 30, 40 years of experience. And my guess is some of these other not-for-profits that are doing it with probably good intentions because of their budgets, they're probably mostly getting you know, 26, 27-year-old attorneys as opposed to people with 26, 27 years of experience who can handle a big docket and handle a lot of people and, and all that. But, you know, one of the things that we're hearing, and I don't want to lose my thought because while I'm, you know, we're, you're a bit older than me, but I also have senior moments for my own reasons. Um, I think what, what we're hearing is, is someone who still has the zealous advocacy, but still the civility of a gentleman and sort of what's almost like a dying art in, in this you know, country, which is sort of the civil but strong argument, um, you know, the, you know, being polite and cordial is not the same as weakness. And, you know, and I'm sure you, you know, can get your gander up when you need to, but it sounds like, uh, you know, you're a gentleman paladin. Well, I appreciate that. I lose my temper a little more often than I should, uh, I suppose, but, uh, it's the UFO. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I like to think of it as righteous indignation. So, uh, but but I am an honest and honorable guy, and I I do enjoy uh, collegiality. I have a lot of friends in uh, in you know that you wouldn't expect in the public defenders' offices and things of that nature. Sure. Uh, that I think it's uh, I think it's a very a good thing to understand that we all play different roles and uh, uh, and that their roles are ex exceedingly important. Uh, how, how do and, people uh, the organization? Well, uh, you look, you can do uh, for attorneys in Maryland uh, when, uh, you know, we're, we're happy to help have you help us with things, uh, you know, uh, donate some pro bono time to us. If you're not uh, in a position to do that, you know, when you go to do your pro bono reporting, uh, there are a number of organizations that you can donate to right there on the judiciary website when you're doing your reporting. And we are one of them. Uh, uh, we would appreciate any kind of uh, financial assistance. I promise you it goes to extremely uh, good use in uh, in. Uh, representing people who uh, couldn't be in more need of an attorney and are ever so grateful for the help help that they get. And, How about non? Frankly, 
How does that? Is there a website or something like that that they? Yes, sure. Uh, MDCrimeVictims.org is our website, and anyone can donate on our website. Find out more about us. Uh, uh, you know, we can use pro bono assistance from non-attorneys as well because uh, we're involved in a lot of activities and organization uh, matters that we could use help with. Okay. Well, those of you in Ireland, South Africa, Australia, and Israel, and I know you're out there because I see it, you know, come on over here and um, do your part. Um, but yeah, uh, a good cause it certainly sounds like, uh, you know, often forgotten in the criminal process, criminal justice process is the victim. And so we have uh, Mr. Wolfgang and uh, his organization, at least in our fair state in Maryland, which rules, by the way, uh, making sure that that's not the case uh, for the limited number of cases that, that they can assist with, which, as you heard, was basically uh, 2,000 times or whatever uh, their, their uh, you know, their next closest uh, competition, at least in that federal survey. So, uh, you know, if you're in the United States, probably your state has a similar type of organization as well. There may be one on a federal level as well. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I'm sure that uh, if you contacted uh, Kurt's organization, they could you know, help direct you to the right state or, or you know, there's, you know, uh, or you could just Google things. But uh, we're going to talk to you again, I think, on one of the other shows about your uh, the UFO experience. And maybe we'll uh, sandwich in some of your uh, uh, combat okay. hotspot stories to make it a, a, you know, a fuller show unless the UFO story uh, sto or stories goes long enough, which, of course, I would love. But uh, um, they, they, you know, they, they will be what they will be. You're not going to embellish. But thank you so much for joining us, uh, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you learned something. I hope that you consider to give to this tax exempt organization and this worthy cause. Um, and I should do this more often, but please uh, go on Apple and/or Spotify and give us a five star review. Write a review. Subscribe. Um, when, if you're, if you're not, if you came on a link that I sent, which some people do, and you're looking for Garden Views, you won't find it. You have to find, look for Garden of Doom, which is my other show, the one that, which is more UFO friendly. Um, but you get Garden of Doom and Garden Views uh, on one feed. If you go to the Wrestling Soup Network and subscribe to Hammerlock Hangover, you get three shows, uh, Hammerlock Hangover, Garden of Doom and Garden Views. But Anyway, you're listening. We thank you for listening. Tell your friends, share, uh, uh, tell your uh, colleagues, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever you can do. We appreciate it. And we're, you know, yes, we're building audiences, really, sometimes two or three people at a time. Um, so, again, thank you very much, Kurt, for coming in. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Garden of Doom. I'm sorry, Garden Views. Even I get it wrong.
To get Victorians back to work and grow the economy, Jobs Victoria is backing small businesses and job seekers. There are free services to help employers find and hire staff, including up to $20,000 wage subsidies. And for job seekers, there's free support to connect you to jobs, training and careers counselling. So if you're looking for work or workers, Jobs Victoria is ready to back you. Find out more at jobs.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.